Welcome back to the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast, where your host, Tristan Keelan, and his guests explore everything about data, from culture to metrics to telling quality improvement stories for the human side of analytics. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Keelan from CCNY, and my guest today is Natalia Rachel, the founder of Illuma Health and author of the book, Why Am I Like This? Illuminating the Traumatized Self. Natalia, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right, so I don't wanna to steal too much of your thunder, but Natalia is a um, one of the leaders now in trauma-informed care and implementing trauma-informed care principles in a variety of organizations. So Natalie, can you just give us a little bit of background on how you got your organization started and sort of what people can look forward to in your book? Aluma Health is born out of a very long journey, both living through, recovering from, and then working with trauma. So my journey started back as a very young girl who was going through a lot of trauma. And I won't get into my entire journey, but you know, it took me over 30 years to figure out why am I like this? What's wrong with me? Um, and that was after over a decade really getting lost in the medical system and no one really knowing how to support me. And that's because back then no one was talking about trauma. And after I got well, I knew that I wanted to work in the field. And it wasn't long before there was a long line of clients waiting to see me after I'd done all of my studies. And after working for some time, you know, I started to learn more and more about trauma. And then I joined forces with a, another, another practitioner here who's actually a Chinese medicine doctor. And we opened a group of health clinics in Singapore. And we specialized in people that had conditions just like mine that were non-resolving with mainstream interventions. They typically presented with a lot of complex conditions or symptoms that weren't really making sense and weren't resp responsive. And so we became the go-to place for people with these kind of experiences um, to seek support and a lot of people got better. And so working in this field for a really long time, I learned a lot about trauma and particularly about the very interesting relational component to it. So we often think about physical and, and mental experience of trauma, but a large part of trauma is relational. And after some years working in this landscape and sort of in line with all of the very intense things that have been happening in the world, I decided it's actually time to now stand up and focus on trauma in a much bigger way. The world needs all the support to heal from trauma that we can. And so that's what led me to found Illuma Health and also to write my book, um, Aluma Health is all about helping us learn how to repair and revitalize the way we look after ourselves and each other and co-create a trauma-informed world. Uh, we've got three pillars of the business. So we have a team of therapists who are all trained in trauma. We have online education that's either free or affordable. And then we have corporate consulting and education, which is where a lot of our focus is at the moment. And the book is the culmination of all of it. So this is it here. Um, it just came out this month with Penguin Random House and it shares everything I've learned in my now 40 years about what it means to exist with trauma, how to begin to heal ourselves and how to engage in ways that heal rather than harm. So I think that when we heal our trauma, we become the social impact that the world needs. 
Thank you for that. Um, you know, it's really great when um, when people can bring their personal experience with their education. It really makes for like you know a, a powerful output for sure. So on, on the on the podcast here, we like to talk about how um, people are able to use um, data to take action and make change. And so um, you had told me earlier, I want to talk a little bit about the situation when you were working in the clinics where um, you were having some retention issues with clients about, you know, ceasing care or, or not returning after a certain number of sessions. Can you tell, tell us more about the data that you were seeing initially that made you tackle that, that problem? Absolutely. So, as we began to be really specialized with trauma and the place that people with trauma that was not yet named were going, I started to notice that within our team, and we had practitioners in all different modalities, there was a really huge retention issue. So there was clients flooding in, and we were seeing that many of our practitioners were only retaining one out of three or four clients. And so that made me think, hmm, something's going on here. There's, there's information missing. I need more information. And what's going on? What's happening to these clients? And how can we help them get the care they need? And how can we empower our team to actually give them that care? And so that's what we started to notice. And, and we began to investigate. So it, in that investigation, um... So you've got like one out of every three or four clients. And when you say they're not, it's a retention issue. Like how are you defining, you know, a, a, a negative retention outcome, I guess? So if a client comes to one session and doesn't opt into ongoing care for, for, for mm. our clinic, that's a retention issue. So that's number one. And then the other thing we saw is that there was a, another group of clients or patients that would come and they would stay for three, sometimes four and then they would drop off. So it's happening at two different two different stages of the client journey. So I, that's, I think that's really important because a lot of times we tend to hone in on a, a measurement and really not look around that measurement. So if you had only limited your, um, your retention metric to clients who don't return after one session, you would have missed the fact that even after three sessions, some clients were not coming back. So um, I, th I think from a data standpoint, that's really insightful to make sure people are remembering, look at your target, but also look around your target and see when you're off your target, how far off. Um, and there's a lot of insight in there. Okay, so retention is definitely something that's important. Um, you can't make an impact on a client if they're not showing up and they're not coming back. So Tell us about the strategies that you tried to put in place, or sorry, did put in place to affect that. Five key things that we did in order to address this issue. The first is that we really built out our intake form and we started to use a lot of check boxes for certain markers of trauma. And so we picked key markers that were physical, emotional, behavioral, and relational. So the client, when they were, were doing their intake form, would need to tick which ones apply to them. So that's already giving us a good sense of how is trauma decontextualizing in this person um, and therefore what would be the relational approach knowing this. We also clearly asked on our intake form, have you experienced physical abuse 
or sexual abuse. So these were questions that needed to be answered and there was more information if they wanted to share, which some did and some didn't. Um, and just from that form, we learned that 90% of our clients had an experience of physical abuse um, or sexual abuse. And that would range from anything from say being hit or tapped as a child through to really heinous abuse. And of that 90% that had ticked yes for physical abuse, 60% had also ticked sexual abuse. So those rates were really very high. So that's the first thing that we did. The second thing that we did was we put um, a more comprehensive referral system in place. So when we had clients uh, filling up forms that would have a lot of boxes ticked, they would actually be sent to me. And I would assess, well, now which is the best um, practitioner to refer these to? And I would give a little brief to the practitioner with my experience on what might be an appropriate relational approach to care. In line with that second thing that we did, we also spent time speaking to each of our practitioners to understand and better qualify who would be the best clients for them. And this is something that I think is not done in many places. So for example, we would learn which of our therapists work best with maternal attachment trauma, which of our therapists are really good at working with physical abuse, and which of our therapists are actually very good at working with men uh, that lack empathy. And so we would be able to start to make very, very concise referrals uh, that really, really helped. And we began to check in with our practitioners every three months to see if they wanted to change the scope of the clients that they were working with. Uh, and rather than broaden, we, we kept them becoming smaller and smaller, more and more specialized, because it meant that the clients that were referring to them were very, very resonant. The next thing that we did was we implemented additional professional development training for all of our practitioners. There were some basic sessions around trauma-informed care. And I also developed a short training on working with sexual abuse and a relational approach to recovery. And the last thing that we developed was, uh, it was for practitioners only. So it was, a, it was a sort of another intake form, but not for the client. It was for the practitioner to use after their sessions. And it was called a signs and symptoms of trauma checklist. And so it would allow them to pick up in session and through the arc of time, other little markers that may indicate certain types of trauma and then help them understand, well, how do I now again develop or deepen my relational approach to care? So all of these things were put in place and we saw really great results. Wow, okay, so did you implement the this forms uh, an assessment strategy with every client that came to you every client so, so how important is it from a trauma-informed care perspective that you start every new client with a trauma assessment versus starting with something more generic and then determining later that there was trauma so number one, we never called it a trauma assessment. So I think that's an important piece. We didn't say, hey, fill up this trauma assessment. This is just our intake form. And these are the questions mm -hmm. on our, our intake form. I think even calling it a trauma assessment would have changed the way people answered it. That's my very strong opinion. Um, so we had our intake form. 
most importantly, I, I believe for a practitioner or a therapist to understand the potential trauma and suppressed emotions and potential triggers that might be sort of laying inside somebody really helps us to begin to engage in ways that promote safety and relational attunement. And attunement is the thing that is going to allow a client to open up in any way and to stay. And so the more empowered a therapist or a practitioner is, the better they can attune on a first session. Um, and it's often, I think, a first session and maybe a third session where there are these points where the client needs to know, I feel safe with this person, uh, they understand me and they get me in a way that probably nobody else has. Yeah, so very often, you know, in kind of the operational side of mental health and behavioral health, when we think of, you know, metrics like retention, um, you know, a lot of times we, we tend to think about operational strategies. You went towards care strategies to assess, you know, what looks like an operational metric. Talk to me a little bit about how you determine that, you know, that, that a better trauma assessment was going to affect your retention. Cause we think of retention as attendance and that makes it sound like are you, uh, we tend to look towards issues like transportation. Are you able to get here? Do you need a ride? Or are you forgetting about your appointments? We tend to think very surface level about why people don't show up for appointments. How did you decide that let's think about the care that's being provided and the way that we're, tar we're interacting with our clients as a means to get them to show up? I mean, I, again, I think it's both personal and professional. Certainly in my mm -hmm. journey, going through the entire healthcare system, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and seeing so many doctors and practitioners and therapists, I was so triggered all of the time by the way I was spoken to or not spoken to or um, just not attuned with. And I think that in the case of trauma, this is actually what ignites the possibility for, for relational healing to happen is to feel seen and heard. And I also know back in my journey, I was really good at pretending that there was attunement and that everything was fine. Uh, so most of us trauma survivors are very good at making it seem like we're fine and like everything's okay. And then inside we're fragmenting and, and feeling not good. And there were so many times that I just didn't go back or I'd stay for a few times and then I'd leave. So I guess that part, it's really um, personal. Um, and then I guess working in this clinic environment with so many different practitioners, I could then start to get a sense of, well, I could imagine that if you spoke this way, a client might be triggered or if you didn't pause or if you didn't make eye contact, um, all of these things. And so I guess the dots started to join. Um, and it, it really was the case. We even, I even spoke to as the director, a few clients to understand, you know, why haven't you come back? And some of them were pretty honest with me. I just didn't feel safe with my practitioner and the practitioners are all beautiful humans, but perhaps they didn't have the level of education or resources they needed to truly tune into the very complex traumatized self so that they would feel safe and so that they would stay. 
And I think that's, and it highlights the important relationship between quantitative and qualitative data. You have the numbers telling you that retention is an issue, but talk to people, interview them, ask them why they're not coming and you'll get the really valuable data of, no, it's got nothing to do with my ability or inability to come in for a session. It's about my choice and my desire to not feel like I'm getting what I want there. I actually had a, uh, a, a wise person once told me, talking about no-show rates, that it's such it's so easy for quality and process-driven people like me to look at a no-show rate and, again, think about how um, your brain just goes to appointment. Are you in the right location? Are you getting the right appointment reminders? If you're a child, does your parent get those reminders? You know, is, you know do they remember that? to bring you in for your session. And he said the best strategy for attendance is quality care. If people feel like they're getting better, if they feel like they're benefiting, they will show up. They will remember, they will find ways to get there if they feel like they're benefiting from it. Um, so it seems like there's a little bit of that going on here. So. All right, now that you've implemented all these new strategies, can you tell us a little bit about the changes in those retention metrics and what sort of So retention you saw? went up to four out of five very quickly. Uh, so it was very immediate. And so I believe all of these things together really worked very well. Oh, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about some of the emotional aspects of this because in our in our business, data typically represents people. Um, and you, you once told me in a previous conversation that uh, trauma-informed care was just empathy with more data points. So as, you know, a, a survivor, a practitioner, um, what is it, you know, we started with one out of four, you ended up with four out of five, but those represent people. Tell us what it means to you when you see the data change like that, because they're not just lines on a graph. When people feel safe to start exploring their trauma, beautiful things happen. And I know that so many people just don't feel safe to do that. And so for someone to have actually initially come and opted in and said, hey, I want some help, and then to feel some kind of relational rupture or some kind of rupture within themselves and then opt out of care is heartbreaking. And I think that this happens to many, many people every single day. And to know that we can put systems in place and dynamics in place to really give someone the best chance possible to stay the course of treatment and to heal. I mean, that's how we're going to change the world. Yeah, I like that. Um, systems can be put in, in place, right? It's just Good. that I think they need to potentially both be data-driven and operational, but they also need to be human. Essentially, it's a human uh, that has trauma and it's a human interacting with another human. So we need to understand not only these very operational elements, but we also need to understand how are they responding to me. Right, that's great. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who's sitting in, today in the seat that you were sitting in then, 
right? Looking at your metrics, contemplating all these, you know, assessments, like what did it, what did it take to implement five new strategies, you know, across a, a set of clinicians and, and what would you tell your former self, you know, going into that change that you, you know, know now? <laughs> oh my goodness. It took so much work, a lot of commitment, a lot of hours, a lot of thinking, a lot of heart energy. Um, I guess looking back, I would have done it from the start and I would have taken a lot more time um, to develop it rather than being reactive. So I did it in a reactive way and I would tell my former self to be way more proactive with it um, and to continue to research and get data so that I could continue to shape um the, the system that I was creating, this trauma-informed care system. And that brings it back to the the notion that these numbers represent people, right? So uh, quality improvement, improving metrics, it's hard work, but four out of five instead of, you know, one out of four or five means three to four more people got better because they were able to re-engage or stay engaged in care. And that's important. So what a, a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I do want to give you the opportunity um, to talk, you know, a little bit as, as much as you want about your book and what people can expect and um, encourage folks to, to check out the book. Why am I like this? Thank you. So this book is 40 years of my lived experience as a patient turned therapist. The whole premise of the book is that if we experience trauma either early on or for a prolonged period in our life, we experience an existential shift. And so the way that we experience and perceive and express and engage in the world is fundamentally altered. And this happens when we don't have access to three things. One is safety, two is belonging, and three is authenticity. Um, and so the remedy is in the root always. So in order to heal, we actually have to cultivate experiences of these three things. So that's the premise of the book and it builds through the six parts. Uh, so part one is the existential shift. Part two is all about, I, it's called prologue to self. And it's all about why am I me and why are we, we? So it explores the unconscious mind, it explores the nervous system, and it also explores attachment and attunement. We've spoken about attunement and our map for love, the way that we relate um, in the context of trauma. Part three of the book talks all about fragmentation. So when we have trauma, one of the things that happens to us is that we fragment and we suppress parts of ourselves um, because they were not safe to express. And those parts are the ones that either hijack our experience and take us into difficult scenarios, or they are the ones that get triggered. And so part of our own healing and part of learning to hold space well for others is to start to understand the fragment itself. Um, part four is all about the suppressed emotions that come along with trauma. And while our trauma story is so unique and personal, I believe that it's our emotional experiences that unify us as humans. And so in that part of the book, I explore all the ways we suppress our emotions and how those taint or color our experience and expression in the world. Uh, it's quite deep. And part five is just simply called the point of freedom and it's really short. And it just shares how once we understand the existential shift and the unconscious and the fragmented self and these emotions, 
we get to this place where we have enough awareness and capacity to heal and to emancipate ourselves from our trauma. And the last part of the book is called Embodiment, the Laws of Peace and Power. And everything that I believe we need to live by in order to create an experience of internal peace and relational harmony. And so I, I try to live by these laws. And sometimes, of course, I slip out. I'm fallible, just like anyone else. But I'll always question what happened when I have done that and, and try to return to them. And I hope that they become the blueprint for us all to start living and engaging or relating in ways that heal rather than harm. So each piece of the book shares a concept, a teaching, a piece of my story where I lived and learned, as well as self-inquiry questions and a somatic meditation with a trauma-informed note so people can really start to process both in the mind and the body in ways that are safe. Wonderful. Uh, I can't wait to read it. Um, Natalia's book, Why Am I Like This? Illuminating the Traumatized Self. Uh, is available on Amazon uh, or any other major retail outlets. Um, Natalia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.